Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Paul began with a description of righteousness in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, and then an illustration of righteousness in chapter 4, verses 1 through, through 25. And now Paul will begin a serious discussion of the benefits of righteousness in verses 1 through 11. Paul isn't content to just simply give us some theological or academic explanation, although there's no problem with theological or academic explanations. But Paul wants something way more. It isn't just an explanation of justification by faith, but a transformation that takes place as you begin to understand the blessings that are in store for you, for the person who has a justified heart. Paul has spoken of the principle of faith, justification by faith alone. The history of faith, Abraham and David in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. The dynamic of faith in chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. So what do I mean by that? The dynamic of faith. Well, remember, Abraham believed God's promises. That in his seed, the nation of the earth would be blessed. Jesus is the ultimate benefit being Abraham's progeny, David's son, Israel's Messiah. Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification in chapter 4, verse 25. Chapter 5 is a summary of the blessings and benefits. We see the amazing joy that comes from faith in verses 1 through 11. And then Paul will contrast the sinful Adam with the sinless Christ. I don't know if you've ever seen that commercial on TV where this guy gets up and they say, he is the most interesting man in the world. It's not true. Jesus is the most interesting man in the world. Everything that you could possibly hope for, experience, and what it means to know God, love God, be forgiven of sin, and reconciled by God is found in Christ. What does all of this mean? What does all of this mean for you and for me? Again, we receive the benefits of blessing in our lives by faith in God's promise. Abraham had righteousness imputed. That means placed. By faith in God's promise who raised Jesus from the dead. Justification by faith can become a reality for everyone. Me, you. The guilt of sin can be removed. The believer can have fellowship with the creator God who is also the redeemer and the Lord. And so Paul is going to begin to talk about it. We can have peace with God in verse 1. We can have access to this most holy and marvelous Lord through prayer in verse 2. Now the benefits, just peace and access will begin to pile one on top of the other. The same faith that justifies, that means the, the faith that gives access to an amazing, abundant, enabling grace. Grace like rain that comes from above. Pure in composition, divine in origin. What a beautiful metaphor, unless you get way too much rain. But the truth is you can't have too much grace. It will rain down on you. And again, there's something else. 
Because of this grace, we can have hope in the glory of God in verse 2. And that means the expectation of a full restoration to God of the believing sinner through God's wonderful and power and eternal redemption. Paul will focus on the fact that through much tribulation, we enter the kingdom in verses 3 through 5. And that we can have, verse 3, assurance. And what do I mean by that? Tribulation, working patience, or steadfast, which brings a devotion, a devotion to God, a transformation of character. Character brings an unshakable hope. With that, we also have the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside of us that confirms the love of God inside of us. So, let's briefly... Look at some of the benefits. Verse 1, where we're going to spend most of our time. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace in our hearts. As a matter of fact, the verb, we have peace, is in the present tense. So it can't mean Let's go and try and find peace. In the New English Bible, it says, let us continue at peace. Philip's paraphrase is really helpful at this point. He says, let us grasp the fact that we have peace. But some of you haven't grasped the fact that you have peace. Paul elsewhere describes the origin of the peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. We have peace. It is our present possession. The godless and disobedient sinner that's been talked about in chapter 1, verses 18, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, when he was talking about all of the Jews are condemned and all of the Gentiles are condemned. Now he brings it all the way back and he says, no, 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 you don't have to be condemned. You have peace. The godless and disobedient sinners of chapter 1 verse 18 have been granted peace. Billy Graham used to say, we have the peace of God. And we have peace with God. He was exactly right. The war is over. The rebellion ceases. The terms of our surrender have been accepted by God in Christ. And so we learn that peace is the product of the cross. So making peace by the cross, Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Peace is the fruit of the Spirit. Remember that the presence of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So what does it mean? Again, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. We spent a great deal of time looking at the concept of justified by faith. But just let me remind you of a couple of things. Remember what justified by faith is not. It doesn't mean acquitted in the sense that you have successfully defended yourself against the charges that have been made against you, that I'm really not that bad, that there's really no problem, that there's not an emptiness in my heart or a difficulty or a problem with my sin. We have not defended ourselves against the charges. And it doesn't mean pardoned or paroled. That means it doesn't mean that you've been set free with certain restrictions. Again, the meaningful definition of justified by faith was provided by Augustus Strong, who in his systematic theology a long time ago wrote, by justification we mean that judicial act of God which on account of Christ, to whom the sinner is united by faith, he declares the sinner to be no longer exposed to the penalty of the law, but restored to his favor. Think about that definition. No longer exposed to the penalty of the law, but now positively, truthfully, in reality, united and restored to God. 
So we are justified by faith that it might be of grace, it says in chapter 4, verse 16. Justified by faith, chapter 5, verse 1. And I need you to understand something. This isn't just simply the best way to be saved. It's the only way. It's the only way to be saved. It's always by grace. And grace is always the best way to glorify God. By the way, it's the only way that God can be glorified in our lives. So the results of justification include, number one, the remission of sins penalty, Acts 13, Romans 6, 23, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The restoration of divine favor, this passage we're reading, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The imputation of Christ's righteousness, Matthew 22, 11, Romans 4, 11, Romans 4, 23 and 24. Here's what we learn. Humans can justify Only one type of person. The innocent. God justifies the guilty. Man justifies on the basis of what we do for ourselves. God justifies on the basis of what Jesus has done. So Paul exhorts us. You can enjoy the peace of God that's been given to you on the basis of the reality that your sins have been forgiven and that your sins have been forgotten. We're given permission to refuse the doubt and the fear that robs us of our precious heritage that rightfully belongs to us On the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus, someone has said that peace rules the day when Christ rules the heart. Is peace ruling the day in your heart and in your life? The basis of peace is Jesus and the secret of peace is trusting him. Ours is a purchased peace, it says in Colossians 1.20. And it's a person. Ephesians 2.14 says, he is our peace. So when Paul speaks of peace with God, it meant way more, way more than the absence of conflict. But rather, the positive presence of God himself and the favor of God. Matthew Henry wrote, what peace can they have who are not at peace with God? He's exactly right. There are people who might say, "My my home isn't flooded. I can flush the toilet. I have peace because nothing is going wrong in my life, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the absence of conflict or the fact that no tragedy has overtaken your life right at this very moment. Do you have peace or do you live in a world of constant anxiety? Do you have a guilty conscience Has anyone ever said to you, have you made your peace with God? Now that's an interesting expression and it usually only comes up when you're in immediate danger. Peace is not a reward. It's a gift. Peace is not made by us. It's made for us by Jesus who made peace. Peace by the blood of his cross. And so the most important peace that you could ever have isn't just simply with your husband or with your wife or with your children or with your government. It is the peace that you have to have with God in order to function in any way in your life. Roy Lauren wrote, if man has peace, it is because he signs the armistice of repentance and accepts the terms of God, which are unconditional surrender. This is exactly right. Peace with God requires the war to stop, the enmity to be resolved. Secretary of State John Kerry recently told a group of reporters 
as he was discussing the hostility that was growing and continuing to mount in Syria, he said something that I found really interesting. The Secretary of State said, this is no joke. And I thought about it. It it was stunning to me. Peace is not amusing or the absence of amusement. Peace isn't pleasure. Peace isn't amusement. Peace isn't a diversion. Peace isn't simply not having fun. Peace is spiritual life received through the spiritual birth under the auspices of of the spiritual life. But we have an amazing capacity for diversion. Human beings are the people who are unbelievably adept at trying to get their mind away from the claims of God and the claims of Christ and what it means to have peace with God. In Boulder, someone held up a sign that says, we're okay, but bring us beer. Now think about that for just a moment. I understand it makes perfect sense to me that you want to laugh off your circumstance. It makes sense to me that people are going to try to divert themselves from the problem at hand. It makes sense to me that they'll get up and they'll watch TV from morning till noon till dawn. They'll watch the radio. They'll read a book. They'll do whatever it takes to not have to consider the claims of Christ. They'll divert themselves even in the midst of pain and horror and difficulty. But it need not be that way. Particularly if you're a Christian. If you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. And look what else he does. In verse 2, he says, we have access to God. Look at what it says in verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The possession of peace provides the procession of access by faith and grace to God now and forever. Let me put it a different way. Sin says... You have no right to go to God. Justification by faith says you can go to God through Christ. You have access by faith into grace and can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So again, the peace isn't simply a a subjective or a personal feeling of well-being. The peace that Paul isn't talking about isn't just simply, I feel good about myself. Or I feel good about my circumstances. Or I feel good about this or about that. That's not what he's talking about. The peace is intrinsic inside your heart, but it's also external. Intrinsic or objective. It's something that's outside of us. In what sense? God's wrath has been removed through Jesus' death and the lost sinner has been granted access to grace. God's grace. And when you're given access to God's grace, guess what else you get? God's presence. The word access is very interesting in the original language. It's the Greek word pro, sa, go, gay. Literally, it means something that you bring up. Literally, it means a bringing up or a bringing to. It's the same term that's used in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 12. Some Greek scholars like Ellicott translates this introduction. We have introduction by faith. Some say it's more of a formality. In the sense, he introduced us. In the sense of our standing as Christians. This is one of the amazing images that Paul is giving. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus is the door. You open the door in order to have a right relationship with with God, but it's mixed metaphors. Jesus isn't the door. Simply, Jesus also meets you at the door. He is the door, and he meets you at the door. Other scholars take a different position. They write, 
the idea is that of introduction into the presence chamber of a monarch. The rendering access is inadequate as it leaves out of sight the fact that we don't come in our own strength but in need. And one who is in need of an introduction. That's the point that Paul is making. I want to just go to God. You can't. But I want to. Sorry. You can't go to God on your own. You can't go on the basis of your own righteousness. You can't go on the basis of your subjective feeling or your personal desires. This is what Jesus meant when he said, no one comes to the Father except by me. I read the story of a little boy who was standing outside of Buckingham Palace in London and he wanted to talk to the king and he was being sternly rebuked by the guards and he rubbed his grimy hand into his even more grimy cheek and he wiped away a tear and a well-dressed gentleman came along and he said to the young man, explain your trouble. And when he heard the story, the man smiled and he took the child by the hand and he said, hold my hand, sonny. I'll get you in. Never you mind these soldiers. And to the boy's surprise, as they walked past the soldiers, they snapped to attention and they presented arms. He was led past the guard into the halls of Buckingham Palace. The doors opened and he went directly to the throne of the king. And the reason why he was holding the hand of the Prince of Wales, the king's son, It granted him access. You as a Christian. Hold the hand of the son of God. As your granted access. And think about this for just a moment. Here access means introduction. But it also means free admission. And the free admission isn't just simply into the presence of God. It's the free admission into the benefits of the presence of God. And this is the point that he's making. Both present and future. Something amazing. Something amazing has happened in Paul's presentation of our benefits. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul excluded boasting in chapter 3, verse 27. And now Paul is going to reintroduce boasting. But boasting gets redefined. It's a boasting that's rooted and grounded in justification by faith. A faith in the glory of God. That's at the end of chapter 5, verse 2, actually. The hope of the glory of God, once forfeited by sin. That's chapter 3, verse 23. Now the hope that was once forfeited by sin is fully realized. Fully, finally restored on the day when believers are in God's presence. And Christians have confidence in their sufferings in verse 3. And have confidence in God in verse 11. And so when you think about what you're reading. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That means remain. That means never to be moved. Into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and bring this to life for you. The word glory translates the familiar Greek word doxa. You might know that word. We have a word doxology. That comes from it. When you sing the doxology. You sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I know what you're thinking. Keep your day job. (laughs) Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above. Sing it with me. Ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Sing it. Amen. Good job. That's the doxology. You're giving glory to God. The word has a long and meaningful history. In its primitive origins, it meant... Opinion, estimation, then it came to mean 
reputation. In the Septuagint, it came to mean brightness or splendor. Here in this passage, it seems to have a future application, a special future glory in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? Paul is talking about the glory of God in terms of the splendor of the presence, what the Hebrew people called Shekinah, which we mispronounce Shekinah. It's communicated to human beings partially here, fully there, in limited measure here, in full measure there. Paul is presenting an image, a picture, that when you go to heaven, the very splendor of the glory of God as you enter his presence transforms you forever. That's one of the benefits. That's what he means by access. Now, again, we have peace with God. We have access to God. But Paul isn't content to just simply say that. We have access to God, and then we have access to grace. And access to God and access to grace means access to God through prayer. And and then he keeps on going. We have assurance. This access brings a kind of assurance. In what way? Look at verse 3. And not only that... (laughs) If that were enough, if that were the only thing that you have, you have peace with God and you have access to God. God, you could say, we're done here. We're we're done here. I don't need anything else. But Paul, just like the commercials on TV goes, but wait, there's more. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Time out. Time out. Tribulations, yes, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. But we also glory in tribulations. This should cause each and every one of you to go, Paul, what are, what are, you, what are you saying? Because the truth is, we usually don't. We don't glory in tribulations. When hardship comes upon us, when someone we love dies, when, when someone we love is hurt or injured or deprived, we don't glory in tribulations. We shun them. We want to get away from them. We want to excuse them, deny them, pretend like they don't happen. We don't want to deal with the tribulations that come when our parents grow old or when our children get sick. We don't want to deal with the tribulations tribulations that come with economic hardship or setback or difficulty. And so why is Paul glorying in tribulations? Let's tear a page out of his autobiography. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10, he writes, "We are handicapped on all sides, but we're never frustrated. We're puzzled, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we never have to stand it alone. We may be knocked down, but we're never knocked out. Every day we experience something of the death of Jesus so that we may also know the power of the life of Jesus in these bodies of ours. Here's what Paul is saying. The truly justified Christian, the one who's justified by faith, the one who has peace with God, the one who has access to God, is not going to be defeated by trials and by circumstances. In what sense? In the sense that we don't have to give up our trial and our terror and our circumstance and our fear does not force us to throw in the towel or call it quits with Christ. But how many people do you know who say exactly that? I'm giving up on Christ and Christianity. I tried it and it didn't work for me. Pause. You mean you've been justified by faith and you have peace with God and you have access with God and then when a little trial comes, you throw in the towel, you call it quits? Here's what Paul is saying. 
you have permission to go forward. You have permission to go ahead, but, but I've lost everything. No, you still have that which is the most important thing you could possibly possess. You have been justified by faith. You have peace with God. You've been given access to God. You're going to heaven and not to hell. Everything that God has given to you, none of it has been taken away. I want to give up. You don't have to give up. I want to throw in the towel. You don't have to throw in the towel. You've been justified by faith. You've been given access to God. You've been given permission to go forward. Paul knows, Paul knows, Paul knows that the tribulation produces patience. It produces perseverance. And you will see story after story emerge just like it did at 9-11. Just like it did in Katrina. Just like it did there. You are going to see people at their best. And you will see people at their worst because the trial and the tribulation will cause what's really inside of you to come to the surface. How can anyone, how can anyone rejoice in hardship? Paul does because he understands the benefits that it's going to eventually produce. Paul understands about the hardship of childhood because it's going to produce the benefits of maturation. He understands the hardship of school because it's going to produce an education. He understands the hardship of preparation because it's going to result in the benefits of and the resources on the day of hardship. I don't want to prepare. Then guess what? Don't. Go on 9 News and say I can't flush the toilet and I can't change the baby's diaper and I don't have any formula. Choose not to prepare. And then when the hardship comes, you will become a part of the problem rather than a part of the solution. Perseverance translates a very familiar word that sounds exactly like Italian ice cream, spumoni, only it's hoopamoni. That's how you remember. Think Italian ice cream, spumoni, hoopamoni. Hoopo is the word that means under. It's also translated hypo or hoopo. It's the word that has come in our own culture in language to mean like a hypodermic needle. It is a needle that goes underneath the skin. Hypo is under. Mino means to remain. So literally the word means to remain under in a steadfast way. The old King James translates this the word patience. But perseverance, I think, is more appropriate because it brings out in reality what I think Paul is saying. It's the elements, not just of sticking it out, but it includes the elements of bravery and effort. Bravery and effort and staying the course and staying on track. The word patient enduring or steadfastness or constancy or integrity. Thayer translates this quote in the New Testament. The characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety. It's an ancient word. Piety means religious dispositions. It means affection. Piety was a word that meant religious dispositions and affections, but it came to mean the religious dispositions and and affections that you have for God and Christ. And then he says, his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings, unquote. In other words, it's the kind of perseverance that says, no, I've been justified by faith. No, I have access to God. No, I have been forgiven. No, I am living forever. What is this hardship doing? What is this trial doing? What is this, this circumstance doing? What is it, what's happening? For the person whose husband is getting ready to leave, Paul says, you don't have to give up on the marriage. 
For the person who says, I'm giving up Christianity, Paul says, you don't have to give up. You can go forward. Does Paul seriously want us to entertain the notion that one of the benefits of being a Christian is trial and hardship? And the answer is yes. Not that we invite trial and hardship, but rather what trial and hardship produces. A maturing and a godly character. Storms make strong trees. Testings make strong Christians. God allows trial and hardship not to impair us, but to improve us. I'm not going to let you stay selfish. I'm not going to let you stay self-centered. I'm not going to let you stay self-absorbed. I'm not going to let you remain in the place that you started with because you've been justified by faith. You have access to God. Your sins have been forgiven and you will be changed. And that's why he writes in verse 4, and perseverance, character. The word translated character in the old King James was translated experience. But in our culture and society, experience doesn't necessarily imply what the experiences have done in your life. And when the old King James translators translated it, they understood that experience formed you and shaped you and molded you. It comes from the Greek word dokimi, which is from the adjective dokamos, which means tested. It's something that's been tested. It's something that's been accepted. It's something that's been approved. It's something that has stood the test of the trial. And so the RSV translates this passage, endurance produces character. And I think that that's right. The famous preacher, Phillips Brooks, who lived in the 19th century in Boston, there's a statue of him out in front. He was one of the most brilliant communicators of his day. He wrote, character may be manifested in great moments, but it is made in small ones. But the small ones begin to add up when you lose your home or when you lose a child. When you, when you suffer great pain, when the diagnosis is cancer, when the health issues don't look like it's going to turn out good. Helen Keller, herself born with perfect sight and perfect hearing, experienced a tragedy where she lost her sight early on. Helen Keller wrote, Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experiences of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, can vision be cleared, ambition inspired, success achieved. Henry David Thoreau said, The study of God's word for the purpose of discovering God's will is the secret discipline which has formed the greatest characters. And he's right. Because that's exactly what happened to Paul. The study of God's word resulted in the discovery of God's will, which resulted in perhaps one of the greatest characters in all of human history. Moody famously said, Character is what you are in the dark, character isn't what you are when you come to church. Character isn't what you are when you simply watch TV. Character isn't what you are when you respond with cliché. Character is who you really are. Backstage I was telling the worship team, reputation is what other people think you are. Character is what you really are. Imagine what would happen if your reputation met your character on the street. Would they know each other? Again, 
The RSV reads, and hope does not disappoint us. Stay in the race. Don't give up. That's what he's talking about. You see, if you're justified by faith and if you have access to God and you have the assurances of God that you are growing and changing, you don't have to give up. God is at work. God is changing you. God will increase your vision. God will inspire ambition. He will transform your character. Why? Because he wants you to persevere. Why? Because he wants to change you. Why? Because he wants you to finish well. And so we're indwelt by God. Look what it says in verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Greek verb translated does not disappoint. Katai, psych, no, or sishno. It means does not disgrace does not dishonor, does not put to shame. It also carries the idea, it doesn't disappoint, or, or we might say, it won't prove illusory. And by that I mean an illusion. It won't prove to be fake. We have a, a word in our culture that actually sums up this word. It's the word bogus. Dude, that, that was bogus. You know exactly what that means. When something is bogus, it's pretend. It's not real. In effect, Paul is saying, biblical hope is not bogus. For the person who says, you Christians, you Christians, you're such a sorry lot. You keep telling yourself that Jesus is Lord. You keep telling yourself that he rose from the dead. You keep believing the Bible. And look at you. Justified by faith. Peace with God. Access to God. In the process of having your character changed. Holding out hope against hope that one day you'll go to heaven. I want that too. That's what they're really thinking On the inside, they want to know if that's even possible. Can you have a right relationship with God? Can you have peace with God? Can you have access to God? Can you develop and cultivate a perspective about your life that demonstrates that God is in the business of changing you? And so Paul says, we have hope. It's the kind of hope that's based on the authority of God and the integrity of God and the word of God. It's the hope that's based not on the circumstances that you find yourself in, but rather on the faithfulness of God and that the love of God in our hearts is the pledge of God in our heart. Every word in this passage matters in in verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The word, the love of God is shed abroad. Ekuno. It's a late form of ekeo. It means to be to pour out or pour into your heart. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Filling and flooding and overflowing your heart. That's what it's talking about. So how do we know the love of God is in our hearts? Because the Holy Spirit is in our hearts, Paul writes. How do we know the Holy Spirit is in our hearts? Paul writes, because you have the pledge of his love. And I want you to note something else, my charismatic friends. This is the first mention of the Holy Spirit. In Paul's letter to the Romans. This is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. Why here and why now? Because Paul isn't simply trying to tie together some loose theological threads. The connection isn't simply technical. He's talking about the possession, the life-giving possession of the real Holy Spirit inside of your heart. 
Because you've been justified by faith. Because you have peace with God. Because you have access to God. Because you're going to heaven. Because you're in the process of being changed. And that change is made manifest by the presence of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Pouring into your hearts. Overflowing love. Yes, it should take your breath away. What is Paul saying? Paul implies that the continuous experience of love in your life and the work of God's love in your life through the presence of the Holy Spirit is overflowing your heart and overflowing your love. So you don't have to give up. You don't have to throw in the towel. Because you're growing and maturing and his presence ministers to you. And the love of Jesus matures you. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life sustains you. And the Holy Spirit helps us learn more and more and more of those amazing gospel stories. Those gospel words. The vocabulary of salvation that I've been trying to introduce you to. Words like redemption and regeneration and adoption and propitiation and preservation and sanctification and glorification so it doesn't sound like empty, dry theological terms that you have to memorize but it becomes a part of your life and a part of your being and a part of who you really, really are. The Holy Spirit makes us conscious and aware of God's love and then gives us a deep and intimate sense of God's love so that we are aware of God's presence and we're aware of his care. And his concern. So what's being stressed? I think it's the sense of intimacy. I think it's the personal manifestation. The personal experience of the presence of the love of God. And of God's justification. As we moment by moment continue in that love. You're justified by faith. You have peace with God. You have the assurances that no matter how deep the difficulty, no matter how profound the trial, no matter how horrible the disaster, everything that God has given to you in Christ can never, will never be taken away. Only the person who's justified by faith truly experiences the love of God. If you're not justified by faith, what if I suggested to you that you don't have real peace with God and you don't have access to God and you don't have the assurances that the trials and the terrors and the horrors are molding you and shaping you and changing you so that the love of God is manifest inside of your heart as you relate to one another. Do you understand what Paul is basically saying? He's saying it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that the person who has never been justified by faith, the person who has never had access to God, the person who has never had the assurances of God, it makes perfect sense that they would walk away and stay away when the trial and the pain and the hardship comes because they were never connected. How dare you judge me? I'm not not judging you. I am asking you to judge yourself. Have you been justified by faith? Do you have peace with God? Do you have access to God? How would you characterize your response in pain and hardship? What is your standing with God? According to Paul, Christian, you're accepted, peace. You have access, prayer. You have confidence in trial. That's perseverance. You don't have to give up. Jesus has given you permission to continue. Well, what if I'm suffering? What if I'm suffering setbacks? You have the, you have the privilege of going forward. Why? Because you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and you can live in victory. You have purpose for your life. Peace. Prayer. Perseverance. The presence of the Holy Spirit. 
the power of God displayed in the love of God by the very presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, I read something interesting this week. It was a quote that O.J. Simpson made in 1970. In 1970, O.J. Simpson, in happier times, said, Fame is a vapor. Popularity an accident. Money takes wings. The only thing that endures is character. Go ahead and send this message to him at the Nevada prison. In one sense... Everything that's happening to you is happening to you because God is at work, testing, trying, preparing, proving. And there's even more benefits, but we have to wait till next week. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word of encouragement. And hope in discouragement. And Lord, for the person who's not prepared, either physically for disaster or spiritually for the future, Lord, we pray that you would make preparation. For the person who's never been prepared to meet God in eternity, Lord, I pray that they would pray this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I need you in my life. I need to know and experience forgiveness and hope. Heavenly Father, I I understand that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I've never been justified by faith, but I would like to be. I've never experienced peace with God, but I want to experience that peace. I want to be able to come to you and have access to you and incorporate grace in my life, forgiveness and hope, and be prepared. When the trial and the tribulation and the pain comes, knowing that there's an even greater work that you have begun to mold me and shape me, to make me like Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that I would turn from my sin and I would turn to you and I would accept the peace and the joy and the forgiveness that's available only in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.